Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, last week I said we're kind of in between series a little bit. We start up the Unlikely Heroes series next week. And uh, so I had a few minutes here, and I thought, what would I do if I just had like 15 or 20 minutes to share? What would I share? And I thought, this is such an important question that I just want to pause and kind of answer it from the scriptures for you this morning. If you've been attending Fellowship Bible Church, I keep meeting people who say, oh, I've been coming like five weeks or six weeks or two months. If you've been attending for any period of time, you now know that one of the things that marks our church is that it's called fellowship, say it with me, Bible church. That's right, that the Bible's taught here. And depending on the church you came from, that may or may not have been the case. But I just want to pause and say it's not only that the Bible's taught, because anybody can teach the Bible, but, it is, but it's how we actually understand the meaning of the Bible. And so that brings us to this question, how are we to interpret the Bible? And that's a really important question. And just let me tell you, I think that's the question of our age. Now, just let me give you a 60-second history lesson. 140 years ago, B.B. Warfield up at Princeton University basically won the battle of the discussion of whether the Bible was inspired or not. He kind of protected, was given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction. And and B.B. Warfield made the case as he left Princeton and started Westminster Seminary over here in Philadelphia. He made the case that, yes, the Bible is inspired by God. A hundred years later in 44, about 44 years ago, there was a group of 300 scholars that met in Chicago, and they signed a document that said, we not only believe that the Bible is inspired, but we believe that the Bible is inerrant, that is, that it is without error in its original manuscripts in the Greek and Hebrew. And what they, those scholars, names you might recognize, like Francis Schaeffer, like J.I. Packer, um, James Montgomery Boyce was a part of that, R.C. Sproul, those men signed this document saying, listen, we believe that the Bible is without error. And therefore, they drew a line in the sand on the fact that the Bible is without error. Now, just for a moment, stop. 144 years ago, inspiration is the issue. 44 years ago, inerrancy is the issue. In our age, I'm convinced that interpretation is the issue. Because we live in a day and age when anybody can go on their social media platform and they have equal authority in their opinion about what something means. Just for a moment, understand that. That means when you go out and put a verse out on Facebook, for instance, somebody says, I don't think that's what it means. I, I think this is what it means. And suddenly, our interpretation has become the issue. So it's important, I think, for us to just pause and say, um, how do we understand how we interpret the Bible? So here we go. I want to start with this thought for you, okay? In all communication, the speaker's meaning takes priority over the listener's interpretation. The speaker's meaning takes priority over the listener's interpretation. So when the Bible says, thus says the Lord, what God means by that matters more than how I interpret it for my sake. Now, let me show you how confusing this is if you don't do it that way. A number of years ago, I was, uh, I, I was, I was connected with a, a friend by the name of Tom who comes to fellowship, and Tom was telling me that he'd been to a speaker's conference, okay? And the moment he said he was to a speaker's conference, I remember thinking, I didn't know you could speak, okay? Like, that's great. Like, I, 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 literally, in my head, I'm thinking, I wonder how good of a speaker he is. I wonder if he can preach for me on a Sunday. Like, my mind's just racing, right? He's talking about this great speaker's conference he was at. 
but it's not making sense to me because it's not working like my interpretation of his word speaker. And then he starts to say, oh, oh, Phil, you're misunderstanding me. I build audio speakers. (laughs) And I'm thinking, this poor guy is thinking, Pastor Phil's about to drag me up on a Sunday morning to preach for him. And all I do is build these things. Okay. Now, here's why I say, tell the story. What matters in the story is not how I interpret Tom. What matters in the story is he's the speaker, he's the one talking to me, is what he meant by what he says. So therefore, you and I just can't take God's word and say, well, I mean it to mean this. We've got to figure out what God meant by what he said, and then we can do the work of application. And this is so important. Because in our world, it's everybody's opinions equal. Well, not so. If you have 50,000 likes, your opinion is more equal than everybody else's, okay? See, that's the insanity of the way world we live in, and that's not the way the Bible works. So in just 15 minutes or less, I'm going to give you four things you got to do, okay? you got to consider the genre. You say, whoa, whoa, this sounds technical. It's not that technical. Just stay with me. You need to consider the genre. And I mean by that that the Bible is written in different genres or different styles or different formats. The books of the Bible are different books of the Bible for a reason. So let me walk you through that real quickly. And some of you, if you were here a year ago, some of this is going to sound like review, and that's good because you've probably forgotten it by now like I have. Okay, so here we go. The Bible is comprised of 66 books. Uh, 39 of them are in the Old Testament. 27 are in the New Testament. You say, how am I going to remember that? Okay, how many letters are in the word old? One, two, three. Three, that's three. How many letters are in the word testament? Nine. I put three next to nine and I get 39, okay? So that's how I remember. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. And those books in the Old Testament are comprised of 17, five, and 17. 17 are the historical books. That's Genesis through Esther. And then there's five poetic books. And then there's 17 prophetic books that are kind of like the poetry books, and you'll see why in a second. Then we have the New Testament, okay? Well, so you have history, poetry, prophecy. These are different genres, and you have to understand what you're reading before you start to read it, okay? Now, the New Testament also has 27 books. You say, how are you going to remember that number? I'm going to take three. How many letters are in new? One, two, three, and I'm going to take Testament. That's got nine letters, and I'm going to multiply them. Three times nine is what? 27. There you go. Now you got it, okay? You got your Old Testament. You got your New Testament. 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New. That's how you do it. Five are historical books, and 22 are letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts are historical books. You say, what about the book of Revelation? If you read the opening pages of the book of Revelation, you realize that he's writing to seven churches. There's some prophecy mixed in there, too, but the point is this, that it is essentially a letter to the churches. And the letters are important because the letters give us some of that practical advice of things we ought to do. Now, when I'm reading the Bible, when you're studying the Bible, when you're interpreting the Bible, you just can't slap any interpretation on it. You say, well, what am I supposed to be looking for? Well, here it is, kind of a 40,000-foot view, all right? When I read the history books, that's the Old Testament or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, I'm looking for the relationships both within human beings as well as between them and God. Let me see if I can explain it another way. Let's take the first historical book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. If you're a scientist, you'll say, man, this is going to be great. I'm going to learn all this stuff about creation. You get two chapters, okay? Chapters one and two. If you're a theologian, you say, oh, I want to learn about sin. I want to understand how sin impacted the world. You get one chapter, okay? But there are some 47 other chapters, the bulk of which are going to talk about four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, right? Relationships. 
When I read the New Testament, I see the same thing. I come to John chapter three, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, a relationship. John chapter four, Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, a relationship, conversations. John chapter nine, Jesus healing the blind man, a relationship. All of that is how I look at the history books. Now, when it comes to the prophecy and poetry books, I look for some of the emotion that's there. I observe for emotional activity. And that's like, just, just think about it for a second. The psalmist writes, I, my, I, literally, I wept so much that I wet my bed with my tears, flat out emotion. The prophets do the same kind of thing in a slightly different manner. Um, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet for a reason. He writes a book but entitled by the name of Lamentations. It's full of laments. It's full of weeping. So you see that. You also see some of the anger in the prophets, right? So you begin to look at those books and say, okay, I'm looking for emotion. But when it comes to the New Testament, the letters particular after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, I'm looking for action words or verbs. I'm just observing, right? I'm just saying, where are the action words? And how does that work? I mean, think about it for a second. I mean, you have verses like um, Romans 12, be not conformed, there's an action word, to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosized, changed by the renewing of your mind, okay? Or you can just take about any New Testament letter and just start looking for the action words. And all of that to say that when I want to interpret the Bible, the first thing I've got to do is say, is it a history book? Is it a poetry book? Is it a prophetic book? Is it a letter? Okay. Because I want to make sure I'm interpreting the right way, the right book. Now, let me talk about this one. Remember the context. Okay. Remember the context. Perhaps of all the things I say this morning, minus the last one, okay, of all the things I say this morning, this is going to be your most important element to understand the scriptures. Now, let me ask a question. How many of you have heard this verse before, okay? Um, and I'm not going to give you the reference. I'm just going to ask you. How many of you have heard the verse, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them? Have you heard that verse before? Okay, hands down. Now, watch this. How many of you know the reference for that verse, the book or the chapter? Can I see your hands? Just a few, and everybody else is Googling it right now. Too late, okay? You're too late, right? There's only a handful of people, and this should tell you something about the context. When someone comes up to you and says, well, the Bible says, okay, my first question to them always is this, and where does the Bible say that? And I found out that most people don't have a clue where the Bible says that, which is a problem because if they don't know where the Bible says it, then they can't possibly know the context. So, So look at this. This passage. Two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. Perhaps you've heard taught, this is why we gather for prayer, okay? Because when two or three gather for prayer, God is in the midst of them. Okay, that's a bit of a problem for a brother or a sister serving and trying to worship the Lord over in the Middle East by themselves, like there's nobody to pray with. Are we to say that God didn't show up for them, right? So the greater question is, where is this verse found in the Bible, And it's found in Matthew 18, and if I do that, I just begin to understand what's meant by two or three, because I let my mind, my eyes wander up to Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you, that's one, and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two with you. I got one, and I got one or two, and when I put that together, I get what? Two or three. That's exactly right. That what is actually happening in this passage is we are reminded that when we go through a confrontation or a conflict, we are not alone. God is in the middle of it with us. You, like me, perhaps don't like those confrontations. You don't like those conflicts. I'm reminded in this passage that I do this alone. 
that when I go, there God is in the midst of me. So the context helps us understand its meaning. Not only remember the context, but let me talk about this too. Remember cultural or historical context. I to push pause here and explain that our world basically looks at the scriptures like this. Our culture determines what the Bible means. So if we don't like the verse, we readjust it, we reinterpret it, we do something else with a verse because the culture trumps the Bible. That's not the way it works. Okay? The Bible trumps the culture. So when I'm saying we've got to give consideration to the culture, what I'm saying is we've got to give consideration to interpret it properly to the biblical culture, okay? what was actually meant back there, to the biblical culture, okay? what was actually meant back there in the Bible. Let me see if I can show you that in another passage. In Luke chapter 15, you may remember the story of the prodigal sons. Uh, uh, He said, there was a man, Jesus said this, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, you and I live in an era where, you know, our kids come to us asking for money for gas money or whatever, and so we kind of grow up in a different era. The co- biblical culture had this moment as so scandalous that when this young man asked for the money, what he should have received was an outing from the family. Okay. In fact, they actually had a word for it. They call it a kazaza. It's a, it's, it's a moment where we have a cutting off ceremony. You ask for the money, you're out of the family. And even furthermore, if you had actually given him the money and he went and spent it all in reckless living and had to eat with the pigs, which is how the story ends, right? Then, and then he comes back home. You would have definitely had the kazaza then. You'd have definitely had the cutting off ceremony then, right? Which is what makes this story so amazing that the father not only gave the son what the son felt he was entitled to, but when the son broke and came back pleading mercy, the father granted mercy, right? And said, kill the fat calf. This is the time to celebrate for my son was lost and coming back. And by the way, there's this great part in that passage. father literally sees his son afar off and is running to him. It, it, it was... Uh, it was not even perceived in that biblical and it, it, it was even scandalous for him to run, but here he is running to reach his son. The point is this, that we benefit from understanding the context, both culturally, historically, and certainly what I would call uh, in proximity, that is the verses that are close by and around. Number three, pay attention. Now, how many of you love English? Can I see your hands? Okay. Five of you. Okay, put your hands down. All right. So when I say pay attention to the grammar, some of you are freaking out, saying, oh, Google it. Okay, I'm just going to tell you, that's a really dangerous place to be. Because the Bible will teach you if you interpret it properly. And I love this. To point out how important even the grammar was, I'm going to use Jesus as an example. Because frankly, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Okay? So here we go. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees. He's at the end of his life, um, at the end of his earthly life. He's in that final week or so before he's going to be crucified. And Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes ask him three questions. They're trying to trick Jesus. Bing, bing, bing. They ask him three in a row. And the point is, is that each time they ask him a question, he just, he just beats them. 
All the people sitting around say, wow, he's amazing, he's amazing, he's amazing. But look what Jesus does with this. You have the Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter three. And when he does that, bear in mind, a little bit of history here. Uh, I live about 500 BC, so that's just kind of how I keep my head in the timeline. That means that Abraham has died and Moses is writing the book of Exodus and he says, God said to me, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. Why would God say I am if these men had died and they didn't exist anymore? God should say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But instead he says, I am. And Jesus quotes from the Bible and says, listen, Sadducees, what's wrong with you? Can't you see that the grammar matters? Why did God say I am as if these men are still living even though they died? And that's exactly what Jesus asked. Look what he says at the end of verse 32. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. It's like everybody in the room is saying, how did we not see that? Okay. And Jesus is saying, simple grammar question. Simple grammar question. Now, how important is that? It is so important that when Jesus gets over to use that phrase, I am again, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the people pick up stones to throw stones at him, to kill him, because they understand that he is speaking in the grammar to say, listen, I existed before Abraham was even living. I'm eternal. The point is this, that you and I would do well just to pay attention to those things. Now, there's one more. How are we to interpret the Bible? The last one is this. You have to yield your choices to his will. And this is why it just isn't an intellectual discussion. When someone interprets it, this isn't about the guy who's the brightest in the room. It's often about the person who is the most submissive and humble in the room. Because ultimately, you have to yield your choices to his will. In fact, this is why when we open our Bibles to interpret it, we just don't get in discussions about it as if it's a logical argument. We pause and say, Lord, just like the psalmist said in Psalm 1, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Like, I need to know, Lord, I need help. You send it, your Holy Spirit is a helper. I need your help to figure this out. We don't come thinking we can figure it all out on our own. These other things, remember the context, pay attention to the grammar, they all matter. But this last one, this last one, is where suddenly you and I are saying, when I actually know the truth, my will, my sinful parts are going to want to say, I don't want to do that. And I'm going to have a tendency to interpret what God is saying so that I don't have it. And let me do that real quickly. Here we go. One final one and then we're done. Uh, Paul writing in 1 Thessalonians says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, all of that's good. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, just stop right there. If you're a Christian in the room, how many of you would want to know the will of God? Can I see your hands? Okay. Every hand should be up. Wake the person up next to you. Their hand should be up too, okay? Uh, it's not a trick question. For this is the will of God. We should want to know what it is that God wants us to do. But remember how I said, okay, watch what's going to happen. Remember how I said you have to submit your choices to his will when you interpret or you're going to misinterpret it. Paul gets really specific here about what the will of God is for us. Watch this. That you abstain from sexual immorality. 
And for just a moment, understand that when we look at that, and that's any kind of sexual sin, when we look at that verse, if we say, well, I'm just going to interpret that metaphorically or allegorically, I'm not going to interpret it as really sexual immorality, okay? how it's really the part of your heart that still wants to sin that is reinterpreting a passage. That's why we say it's important that you say, my choices have to submit to the will of God. And then he goes on to say, look at this, verse 4. Let each of one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. As with a friend, just this last week down in Florida, he was driving me someplace, and, and we were talking about retirement and those kinds of things, you know, because I'm an old guy now. And so we're talking about that kind of stuff. And he actually said, he said, you know, Phil, I have considered the care of my physical body part of my retirement. Like, I need to take care of this body now. And that's why he said I condition, and that's why I try to run, and that's why I try to keep it in shape, because um, that is part of whether or not I'll be healthy when I'm older, okay? This is a man who's starting to apply verse 4. But things like that each one of you might know how to control his own body in holiness and honor can seem a little challenging to actually apply when you're standing at the counter in front of the donuts at the Amish market. You with me, right? Like, all of a sudden, we're tempted with certain things, and we, we suddenly just, mm, I, I'm not going to come back to that verse. Okay. Not in the passion or lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You and I have a responsibility to say, okay, when I actually understand the Word of God, then I have to do the Word of God. And this brings us to the conclusion, and here it is. If you can't understand what the Bible is saying because you didn't interpret it right, how will you ever understand, how will I ever understand what God wants me to do? I have to be able to understand so that I can understand what it is God wants me to do. And that's why interpreting the Bible is perhaps the most important discussion of our generation. We have to understand what God wanted us to do, not simply what we want to, so that we can understand what it is that God wants us to do. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity. We rejoice in the fact that you have given us a clear word that we can learn, that we can discover, that we can understand. We thank you for the power of that word as we even heard in testimonies this morning. We're grateful, Lord, for what you uh, did there in bringing people to faith in Christ. We can understand what it is you want us to do. In Jesus' name. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Public Health.